This episode was sponsored in part by our patrons. Learn more at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. Testosterone is a hell of a drug. Holy shit. It makes you do some things that you're just kind of like, wow, you did that for the D? For real? Masculine tops. Power bottoms. Butch girls. Femboys. Bears. Otters. Unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. Before I introduce this episode's interviewee, R.C., I just want to pull the curtains back and sort of give you a little bit of insight about the production of each episode of Fruit Bowl. Now, some of you might not know this, but all of my interviews for Fruit Bowl are completely unscripted and unrehearsed. The only preparation usually that each uh, interviewee gets is an advanced list of the questions that I'm going to ask. And I do that just so that they can prepare and maybe think about some things that they want to say. But almost all of the people that I interview for this new season of Fruit Bowl, I have never met before. So I rarely know where they live or what the conditions are for the interview. So there's a certain amount of unpredictability that I just have to embrace in the process, which I like. Usually I'll shoot the interviews in people's bedrooms. The bedroom is usually the quietest room in the apartment or house. But inevitably, there are usually some ambient sounds that creep into the edges, which is just a long-winded way of me trying to explain where some of the ambient sounds come from in R.C.'s interview. The first ambient sound that you hear is going to be a familiar one if you live in the Bay Area, and that sound is, of course, the sound of BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. It's a familiar sound of a commuter train system that gets people around the area. In the Oakland area, it's above ground and often goes through residential neighborhoods, and R.C.'s apartment just happened to be right next to a BART line. So you're going to hear BART passing by every so often. The second mystery sound that you'll hear is some heavy breathing. That is not me. That is Emmy Lou, R.C.'s very adorable pit bull. Now, most uh, disciplined documentary filmmakers would have said, can we please put the dog outside? I am a little reluctant to do that because I really love pets, and I also love that my interviewees love their pets, and I like it when pets are pictured in people's uh, filmed interviews, so I didn't want to not have Emmy Lou in the picture, but 
you know, in this recorded podcast, you don't see Emmy Lou, you only will hear her. So just be ready for the occasional lip smacking, sniffing, heavy breathing. Um, don't be alarmed. That's just a very affectionate pit bull. So because I edit these interviews for clarity, that will mean that some of the background ambience might cut out suddenly at points. This is because um, when I edit the podcast episode, I will often rearrange what people said or group things more in a thematic way or in a more linear narrative way so that the story kind of makes more sense. Again, these these interviews are unscripted, so this is just something I have to do because, you know, people don't often talk in a linear way. Often they'll return to themes or remember something later in the interview that I'll need to put sooner. So if you're listening to this interview and you hear the ambience cut out sharply at different points, that's just because I've had to kind of rearrange things. All of these changes that I've made to the order of the interview, they've all been approved by each interviewee. So I just don't want you to have the impression that I'm changing what people are saying because I am rearranging things. That's just something that I do in order to create kind of a, an arc to the episode. If I had more time or if I was a professional sound designer, I would think of ways to cover up these edits. But for now, I just need to prioritize getting each episode out the door so that I can share them with as many people as I can as soon as I can. So enough with the behind the scenes. Let's get to RC's interview. As I mentioned, RC lives in the Bay Area and he uses both he, him and they, them pronouns. RC has had an amazing journey, both from a personal perspective and also they've lived a lot of different places. So I'm excited to share their story. So here he is, RC, with a little help from Emmy Lou, the Pitbull. My name is RC and I'm 35 years old. So a little context about me, I am a queer trans individual. I was, I'm AFAB. Uh, assigned female at birth. I pretty much spent the first 23 years of my life presenting to the world as female. And then started my transition and, you know, 12 years down the line. Uh, I am neither man nor woman, and that's cool. Um, I really identify with being non-binary but also being femme and also being like masculine of center because you know I I look how I look, um, but but yeah also identifying with just being everything all at once. Um, I, I'm a military brat or a former military brat, so I moved around a lot. Um, I was born in the Philippines, mm. and my mom and dad met there, I guess fell in love, and we moved to San Diego. And so a lot of the time I tell people that I'm from California because I've spent a majority of my life here. Pretty nuclear family. That was me, my mom, my dad, and my brother. Just us most of the time, since we moved around a lot. We weren't really with extended family. Sometimes parents, friends would be introduced as aunts and uncles, but 
mostly just us four. If I am going to give you like a quick timeline, it would be San Diego until 94, until I was 10. And then Hawaii for three years. And then Washington. So I lived in Seattle for two years from like 97 to 99. And then in 99, my family moved to Guam. was 10 going back to San Diego my dad would be out to sea for very long he'd do six month stretches out on the boat come back for a couple weeks and then go out for six months again my parents were in their 30s and very young healthy sexual people and my first like you know inkling that sex was a thing was because of my mom and dad you know like they were never shy about having fun. At first I was like, is, are they okay? You know, <laughs> like that, I remember being like, oh my God, are you okay? And then eventually when I did a little more research, realized that something else was going on. Yeah, as, as a kid, I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And that just kind of like created the spark for everything else, I'm sure. But I think because of my introduction to sex, I feel like a big part of my sexuality is hearing it. And like a big part of my turn on is like hearing sex, hearing sexy sounds, hearing sounds of excitement, you know? Yeah, it was, hey, these sounds are familiar. Okay, this must be what's going on there. Um, you know, like being locked away in a room for a couple of hours, like loud music playing, hearing things over music. I mean, it's, it makes so much sense to me as an adult <laughs> that looking back on that, I'm kind of like, oh my God, okay. But uh, then I'm just like, what's going on? <laughs> and then at night I would... Um, stay up late and watch like the nudie channel <laughs> i don't even know what channel it was it was just i knew it was sex because i could hear it i couldn't see it every once in a while maybe like i could see like the zigzaggy like scrambled picture that resulted in a really funny experience so my mom walked in on me watching that and that damn remote control like TVs and the TVs now are great, but like back in the nineties when you really like needed that remote control to like sense your button pushing, it just, it wouldn't, you know, like peak, like I need you to come through for me time and it always shits out. So I was watching the nudie channel. My mom comes in. I can't get the TV to turn off in time. I can see her coming and I'm like trying to turn off the TV and it just doesn't work because the remote was a piece of crap or maybe the battery was dead. Who knows? And she walks in and she sees it and she looks at the TV and she looks at me and she just starts to laugh. She just starts to laugh at me. And then she turns off the TV and she's like, go to bed. And then the next day when her friends are over, 
she was like, oh my God, guess what RC did? And it just was just this huge joke. So I remember when, when we won the fight for marriage equality, I think in California, and my mom called me and she, she was like, the gays can get married, yay, you know? And it was just like funny. It was like, she's like, yeah, they can be in bad marriages too and stuff like that. I was like, wow, okay, cool. When I was little, my mom was doing my hair. I remember I was 12. And the extent of the talk that my mother gave me was, RC, boys only want one thing from you. Don't give it to them. <laughs> and I was like, okay. At that point, I was, you know, interested in boys, but not sure. Just kind of shy, um, but horny. So it didn't take long after turning 13 for that to happen. Um, and my dad never said anything. No, he was never about the talk at all. No, I think they trusted that I would figure it out on my own. <laughs> I, th I think that they would rather not. I have a nine, oh, well, she's 11, 11 year old niece. And when my niece came to visit, when she was 10, she asked me and my, my partner, what is sex? Where do babies come from? And we drew out a diagram for her. And we're like, look, this is, how it happens. And we uh, showed her some pictures and talked to her about like, you know, when you are ready to do this. And it gave us like a segue into talking about consent and all of those things. So I think that if faced with the challenge of explaining sex and where, like where things go to children, I have a feeling that I want to believe this, and we'll, we'll see, but I have a feeling that all of us that, a lot of us queers that had parents that did not give us the sex talk would want to pay that forward, you know, in a way, like, hey, this is something I didn't get, so let me just do you one solid. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of the, the people that I know, at least in my, my inner circle and, and, you know, like outer circles, a lot of us are committed to writing some wrongs that that were had in our lives with the the generations after us we lived in an apartment complex in san diego and there were a lot of like young bros living there too you know and they <laughs> so they had um a bunch of like nudie magazines and one of them threw them all the way in the dumpster area but some of them like fell out of the dumpster and made it to the ground so i managed to find one and i started looking through it and i would you know hide in the bushes behind the dumpsters in my apartment building and like in my apartment complex and like go through these magazines. We got Showtime at one point in time and I would watch Red Shoe Diaries. I remember that was a big one. My dad was a 
my dad probably still is sorry dad a really big porn consumer but that was like during the day of like vhs's and dvds so there was actual like tapes in my household there was a really nasty one that uh i will never forget the title ever it is like ingrained in my mind black and white pussy party <laughs> like what <laughs> One that I was very fond of and watched a lot, especially, and this was like when we lived in Hawaii. So my dad had has friends who have the same last name as us. And it's uh, my uncle Aaron and my aunt Jackie and their three kids. And we were all around the same age. Um, their first two, their, their two eldest were uh, teenagers at, so they were like maybe three or four years older than me. Uh, we would all hang out together when our you know, parents were working during the summer. And we would watch this tape called Amazon Girls of Go-Go. It was very good. It was a cinematic like masterpiece for pornography. Um, so these men get, uh, they, you know, wash ashore on this island somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and it's populated by these Amazonian women, and they take them in as sex slaves. And it was, like, really well thought out. It was, like, more of a movie with some sex in it. So I think that's why I liked it a lot. It was, like, fantasy, and I love fantasy. I think beyond that, I can't remember what else that movie was about because I was just too stimulated. And we would all watch it together. And it had a plot. And so we like really liked it because it was kind of like a fantasy film. But then there was all this like softcore porn in it. And I think that's because it wasn't very sexual for us yet. Mm-hmm. Like I think the, the switch had been flipped, but not quite yet. I feel like a lot of my life, a lot of my sexual exploration has been with other like in the beginning with other members of my family or not oh my god that sounds gross uh no i mean like extended like members like people who are supposed to be my cousins but they're not actually like related to me they're just like my parents friends child so they're like my cousins and we're like young and we're exploring ourselves and all sorts of stuff (laughs) so i feel like a lot of my experiences of sex were not solitary like like at all it was less sexual with other people so it was more about exploration and oh my god there's something funny on tv that we're not supposed to be watching um i've had i've gotten in trouble as a child several times watching porn with my my cousins you know like it was just we're children we're curious we're about something and this is there and might as well you know figure this out together When I lived in San Diego, I was really young. So it was like before my teen years. Mm. Now, when I started actually having sex, I was a teenager. And since we were in the military, um, we moved around a lot. And at that time, I was on, <laughs> I was in Guam. <laughs> so, so I spent my high school uh, years on Guam. Growing up there and wow that was it was pretty phenomenal you know it's a literal 
wonderland out in the middle of nowhere with perfect weather um but there isn't a lot of queer people around like there aren't a lot of queer people there or maybe there are and i in just and in that moment it wasn't as you know it wasn't it was what year was it like 2000 2001 like it was okay to be gay but like not everyone <laughs> was mm-hmm. was as uh, open-minded as they are now, even though, like, not a lot of people are that open-minded. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, it's different. And I think that, like, on, on islands, specifically, like Guam, where they have a rich history of, like, being colonized and all of these, you know, imperialistic things, they there tends to be um like an air of we just don't talk about these things in in spaces like that and and also there was a huge like military influence there most of the people that lived there were like displaced by the military or like worked for the military or you know lived in you know not the best conditions because of the island being you know, overrun by great forces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, I was m- maybe like one of very few queer people in my high school that were out, you know. Um, was it an American high school? Yeah, yeah, it was a high school for uh, federal, like, uh, employees, student, like, Federal Employees Dependents. So it's Guam High School, the most creative name ever. Oh, my God. Uh, And military kids, you know, people who worked for the government send all their students there. And they're just, um, they're Department of Defense schools. So there are a ton of them all over the world. Um, But we primarily would... um, you know, associate with the ones in the Far East, which is like Japan, Korea, um, and the Micronesian islands, you know, like Guam, Saipan, that, that, mm-hmm. that, that area. It was like a slow burn from the age of 10 to the age of 17 okay. until I finally just, until the, it, I blossomed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> My parents are weirdly liberal um, for being in their 60s. I think that my parents have like a general respect for people who respect them, no matter like who they are. I never really heard them say negative things when I was little um, or, you know, growing up. My brother, yes, but not my parents. Mm. Uh, my brother was definitely like my biggest tormentor in high school so you know like (laughs) I remember one time he uh, won the highest score on all of the like all of the computers in our high school like he won the highest score in like Minesweeper or some stupid computer game and he changed (laughs) he wrote his name on the high score like board it said RC is a dyke (laughs) <laughs> and so like all of these computers had like the highest score for whatever video game or whatever computer game uh as me i'm a dyke well, which was great okay fine cool 
I was. You know, so that's cool, Phil. <laughs> but, you know, that was high school. I'm over it. Time, my former self just responded to everything with anger. Mm. So even though it was painful, I just responded in kind with being mad. And that kind of doesn't necessarily get rid of the pain, but it makes it easier to deal with. Open anger and internal resentment did your parents ever negotiate that relationship with you or was it something they just let you figure out with your brother they were very hands off i feel like they had too much going on to be able to negotiate that relationship with my brother and i i don't think that they could have made it any different and i think when i was young i was convinced that they secretly agreed with him, which is why they let it happen for so long. But who knows? And that's what therapy's for. <laughs> After, you know, time and therapy and all these great things, the relationships are better. Mm-hmm. My understanding is better and their understanding is better. But mostly, like, I feel like I've made peace with that part of, of our relationship. And not just, like, made peace. Like, I really, like, thank you for the experience. I'm moving on type mm-hmm. of peace. Mm-hmm. We talk. We're fine now. We Everything got better with my family once I moved out of the house. <laughs> I mean, everything, our relationships really um, started to thrive when I was no longer in their presence all the time. I guess I needed time and space to be myself rather than being this person that they want think I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, sometimes I think we all do. Well, I definitely was a masturbator. Once I learned how to do it, I just have, I haven't stopped. <laughs> like I seriously it's one of the only things in my life that I've done consistently for decades <laughs> I had a teddy bear I still have this teddy bear that I've had since I was born this teddy bear is 35 years old and this teddy bear's nose used to have fuzz on it until I got to teddy teddy bear is named teddy I learned how to masturbate on on my teddy bear, you know? Like, I used it as a tool for pleasure. Um, and, you know, therapy and all those fun things that your teddy bears are good for. Um, and that was, like, kind of, like, my first physical manifestation of that. And that was when I lived in Hawaii. So it was uh, in around 97 to 98. I would say my first crush was Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And maybe Christy Swanson, the original Buffy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think those two people were my original crushes. And then there was like a boy from my elementary school named Brian who I was really into. I liked a lot of people (laughs) uh, all at once. But my first like queer crush was in high school. This girl named Taylor who went to, I don't even want to say the name, uh, went to a Catholic school 
on the island of Guam and she played soccer in the the league that I played in and I remember she drove a red Xterra and I was very obsessed with the red Xterra. When I think about the things that I did, I feel like I was very stalkerish. <laughs> so, but I was very enamored of this person and um not sure why because I look at her now and I'm like, "Ugh." But yeah, it was a, it was a total crush. I was totally like having my first queer crush and writing their name and notebooks all over the place and god, I have like this one diary from when I was in high school that is just like nothing but Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. Ugh. A lot of my crushes from high school up and not even just high school, like from the age of like 12 or 13. A lot of the loves or the crushes that I had were one way. I feel like I wasn't really in like myself. I wasn't really comfortable with myself. I wasn't really, you know, stepping into the fullness of who I am. And so I, I feel like I wasn't presenting my best self. And so, you know, who knows? Maybe that's why... Some folks decided to pass it up, but they're lost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first time. I have a couple first times. So I would say my first time with a woman was, I think I was 16. And... One of my really good friends introduced me to her ex-girlfriend and I developed a huge crush on her and was totally smitten and she was the first girl I'd ever gone down on or ever fingered or had any sort of sexual relationship with and it was very exciting and very new and she was experienced and had threesomes before and she totally was not into me. Like, she was, but, like, was like, nah, I'm, I'm actually interested in the person who set us up. So that was like, okay, cool. I mean, like, it's just the game of love, right? Like, that shit just happens. She definitely helped guide me in that experience, but also I was just very curious, and I was very, like, eager to please, so... I'd watched a lot of porn by that time. No, I'm just, no, not a lot. No, I'm just joking. So she, she, yeah, she definitely did a lot of guiding. And then my other sexual first time, my first time, like with a guy losing my virginity, was maybe a couple months later, and I, that took place in my friend James. His dad. He, so a lot of. The people that I grew up with or went to high school with, they're all military kids. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their parents are single parents. And they have to get, sometimes they get deployed or, you know, like they go or station somewhere for like a couple months. And so a lot of my friends in high school were like home alone for most of, like for a long time, like long periods of time. Um, and we... I think we skipped school one day, went to James's house, like his condo, his dad's condo in, in Guam. And wow, that was like a day of first. Like I basically had a threesome with two boys, uh, which one of our friends walked in on. And it was like just more of a like oral sex type of thing. Like 
nothing too heavy. But one of the guys was a guy that I had a really big crush on that I was, you know, talking to a lot and very interested in. His name is Steven. And, you know, I kind of took that as a segue because I really wanted to have sex too. So we found some time and I lost my virginity to him on James's dad's bunk bed. Which, why did this grown-ass man have a bunk bed? I don't know, but we did it in his bunk bed. And it was very anticlimactic. It was just like, that's it. <laughs> I was definitely coming into my sexual maturity and recognizing a lot of the queer undertones to it. Yeah. Like, and it's funny because, you know, when I was young, I was like, oh, I'm a bi woman, I guess. I could never, I could never just accept being a lesbian uh, because it just, it didn't describe my attraction. Because even though I was like, oh my God, guys suck, blah, 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 blah. I still was very attracted to them. I'd fuck them all the time. You know, like there was just, it's just why, why not? Why just not, why not be honest, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like as I got older, you know, like I was able to refine that 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 sense of who I am uh, sexually, and you know, it's still the same <laughs> as who I was when I was in high school. You know, I'm still attracted to everyone. You know, uh, but I've done a lot of exploring, and so I'm not making the same mistakes that I did in high school when I was presenting as female in the world and being queer. I was dating primarily other people who identified as female or people who identified as women. And then I transitioned and I do still date, I date women, you know, my partner is a woman. Um, but a lot of my sexual like activities happen with men because I'm still queer as fuck, you know? Like, gay if I do, gay if I don't kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel definitely like a queer masculine person, but I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a gay man um, because I don't see myself as a man. And I, you know, like I would call myself bisexual before I would say that I was gay because I definitely, you know, want to include the spectrum of my, my sexuality. It's kind of funny to think about, but I've always had a fascination with dicks. I don't know why, it's just... <laughs> Even as a kid, like, dicks have always... Dongs, just like, of all varieties, have always made me feel warm feelings in my pants. So... <laughs> I think the biggest shift I have to say in my sexuality, or sex and stuff was uh, less about imagining two other people doing it and you know like in the beginning I was imagining men and women doing it together and now or there there was a, a time a point in time where that changed and it was I was having sex with someone so I think that is like the big shift for me is like when I became less of a voyeur like a like someone who was consuming sex or in a in a way that was not a participatory thing to being an actual participant in 
not only my fantasy, but actual sexual acts. You know, I, I could go as far back as like, you know, high school, love, some, you know, post high school relationships. But after some thought, I really thought that I had to be like, like real with myself. Like all of the relationships that I had in my past, like there is some love there, but were they really loving, you know, like, and if I didn't know myself, could they really love me kind of thing. And so with that, I decided that the first time that I'd fallen in love, I think is probably with my most recent partner. And it definitely was not the first time that I had fallen in love, like had those feelings. I mean, you will never forget the first time you fall in love, right? Like the first time you actually go through the rush of emotions and the whole like gamut of feelings, like all the way to the like the demise of it and then the eventual like healing, right? Like that is a very like unmistakable feeling. And I had experienced that multiple times already by the time that I had uh, met my current partner. But I will say that this is my first time experiencing love because this is my first time experiencing love that is truly reciprocated and allows me to be my full self and doesn't require me to like shove myself into these roles and these ideas that you know, I'm going to do this and be this way and think this thing. And, you know, like accepting me flaws and all and being able to give that back to someone. And I feel like I'm bringing my whole self to this relationship and allowing someone to see me fully. And so I think that to be fair, this would be the first time that I've fallen in love. I met someone when I lived in Seattle, and I would DJ at the Wild Rose, it's iconic lesbian bar in Seattle, and um, one of my really good friends, uh, he brought in his co-worker, this person named, I don't think I'm going to name them, but... <laughs> you can give him a fake name. Okay, uh, Rose. And instantly I was like, wow, you are fucking hot. Like, I just could not... I could not contain it. I was just so, so instantly interested in, in her. But we didn't have sex for over a week. And that was very unusual for me because in my hoe days, it was very much the reverse. Like I had one interaction where I had a date set with this person. I saw them the day before at another bar and I ended up going home and having sex with them the day before our, our, our uh, date. So when I met Rose, I was just kind of like, yeah, I think I want to do this as right as I can. We spent a lot of time together in the beginning, just you know, like making out heavy petting, I don't know, I guess that's what you call it. Um, but nothing, like, nothing serious. And I felt kind of curious about someone who could get me to slow the hell down. So I was really just like deeply engaged. And um, she was tired of being straight, I guess. 
you know, like just she told me she'd never realized there were more options than just being with men. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, tell me about it. <laughs> In that moment, I was like almost a decade. No. Yeah, over a decade into being queer, because I came out at 15 and I was around 25, 26. And this person was like 28 and not even identifying as queer yet. Um, we have our first date. It's at this place called Fair, which was a very great Black-owned um, cafe and um, venue spot on Capitol Hill, um, right by City Market. And we had a really boring... I re remember it as boring as fuck. Like, I remember being like, wow, we straight up talked about Costco socks for just like an hour. <laughs> this person, like, whenever I asked her about it, she never remembered it that way, but I remembered it that way. And I remember, she looks at me and she's, <laughs> she's like, can I go with you to your gig? Cause like I had made this date I had scheduled the date right before my gig so that if it were a bust, I could just go to work and be like, whatever. She came with me and in between my sets, we would hang out and talk. And she asked me, she's like, can I kiss you? And I'd never had anybody ask me that before. And I was very like, wow, okay, yeah, sure. And then we spent the rest of the night making out. <laughs> and uh, when we went back to my place, we decided to, you know, go for it. And I was like, look, I, I want you to strap it on and do me in the butt. Yes. Because, you know, she was a straight woman at the time, identified as a straight woman, had only had sex with cis men. She had never been the top, I guess, you know, she'd always been on the receiving end of the D. And I was like, well, I, think you're in luck because if you want to do this I am down for it and we had a talk about it and you know like she was open to it she was exploring stuff um, and then we did it and there was poop and she got a handful of doo-doo and that was like the thing is is like the look on her face because it was the last thing she would ever imagine happening was just like wow that is, I will never forget. I will never forget this all my life. And it's not even, I don't even think poop is traumatizing. It's not, like, shit happens, literally, it happens. Every day for you if you are having regular bowel movements. Um, so, you know, it's not a big thing for me. I was a certified nursing assistant and I worked in nursing homes and I dealt with that kind of thing. So I was like, whatever, but she looked traumatized like it looked like I had run over her dog in front of her and it was very difficult for her I think I remember having to like usher her into the bathroom to like you know have her wash her hands because like I'm sorry I know it's traumatic you know and at that time I had a canopy bed so like having to like climb down a seven foot bed with like shit in one hand uh, and a, like a shitty dick on like a shitty strap on uh it was uh, it was very awkward but we were together for five years after that, so yeah. <laughs> she got over it. She got over it, she got over it, yeah. <laughs> for a year and a half after that, I wouldn't let anyone put it in my butt. Okay. I would not let anybody put a dick in my ass or a dildo or anything, not even a finger. I, and it was like really weird and traumatic for her and I was like, 
you know, I felt like I was the ambassador to gayness for her. So, you know, it just, it had a lot of gravitas to it. For me, it's low-key traumatized me. Yeah. Yeah. But in retrospect, I'm like, oh my God, it happens. But in the moment, it was just kind of like, oh my God, what am I, what, what just happened? Yeah. Oh my, I didn't want to traumatize her, but I figured it was going to, something was going to traumatize her. <laughs> her first queer relationship, there's going to be some traumatic shit that happens. It was just like a lot all at once. Yeah. Flash forward five years later, we break up because this person identifies as a lesbian now. Motherfucker. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, when I would when I would say stuff like, do you identify as queer because you're dating a trans person? A lot of the time she would be like, no, I don't identify as queer because that's not my life. Like, that's not the life that I've lived. Like, I've lived as a straight person my whole life and I don't feel like I deserve to, like, you know, identify as queer. And, it, and that, that's their own their own struggle. And, and eventually they came to the point where they re recognized their queerness and it resulted in, you know, her being a queer lesbian. And after some therapy, I'm very happy for her. When I first came out, I knew I was queer and I was presenting as female. Like, to me, it just made sense. Like, if I'm gay and I'm presenting as female, I'm going to pursue women. And it was hard because there were no apps. There was barely any internet back then, you know, in the 90s, late 90s, the early 2000s. And I lived on Guam, you know, TV was a week late. <laughs> you know, they, they would send us recordings of TV a week after it happened on the mainland. So it's it kind of like stuck in a time warp. Um, and hooking up then was, I had to find people that weren't necessarily queer or didn't know they were queer and queer them up, you know? Like, uh, I think people call that converting, I don't know. I would form relationships with people that were just about relationships and, and, and like the, like us being together rather than us being queer, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was how it was when I was like first coming out, but now my sexuality is very different. I mean, like, I'm still really queer. I'm still a queer, masculine person attracted to other queer people. And while I'm still attracted to, like, feminine individuals and people who identify as women, like, I've definitely stepped very much into being a queer, masculine person. And, like, experiencing parts of masculinity and gay culture that I didn't get to coming out as, like, a, you know, someone who identified as a bisexual woman. So now it's a lot easier, you know, access is a lot easier and like things like Scruff and Grinder and all that make it real easy to find people who are interested in you. And, and you know, there are places like Eros that is a, it's a sex house, it's a bathhouse and it's queer and trans owned. So for me, it's easier because I have access to all of these things that um, I didn't when I was younger and a lot of my like the people before me that had to figure out sex didn't have as well um, and I feel like having all this access access has changed my sexuality in a way where 
I could actually figure it out. You know, like it was, I was less constrained to these ideas or these like certain people and I could go outside of the box and explore. And now that I have all of this access to different types of people, I'm like, yeah, I'm a queer masculine person. Um, and my sexuality has changed in a way where like, I don't identify as being a queer guy. Mm. Uh, being a trans individual, I got a double um, growth spurt. Uh, so in my teenage years, I was like a walking ball of hormones. And then when I transitioned and I started hormones, um, testosterone is a hell of a drug. Holy shit. It makes you do some things that you're just kind of like, wow, you did that for the D for real. Um, it's kind of like psychedelics. You know, like you smoke weed and you feel good. And sometimes if you smoke long enough, it doesn't hit you the same way, right? You can always like cut through the fog of weed. When you do acid, when that hits, there's no turning back. You're strapped in for the whole ride. There's no cutting through it. There's no like fog that can be lifted. It's just like, it's just gonna hit you like a ton of bricks. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that like people who take very, very, very low amounts feel that differently. But I started off at like a very low amount and it made me ravenous. Like put everything in me type of ravenous for a very long time. I'm not that way anymore because you know age and I'm old. Uh, not really old, but it made me understand why a lot of wars were fought. <laughs> like like un totally totally. So I'm 35 now. I think I'm maybe around 32 is when I started to truly feel comfortable with myself. I think for most of my life. Um, transition included all of the different transitions in my life, my gender transition. Around 32 is when I started to actually let myself feel a lot of things. So like going through all of the phases of my life, I feel like a lot of the thing that I was missing was allowing myself to be vulnerable. And I feel like that is like a more true version of myself than I've ever like lived in. And so that's kind of what I feel like is being comfortable with myself, is being comfortable to be vulnerable, being comfortable to be wrong, like being comfortable in, you know, not knowing about having existential dread sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. You can experience relationships. And for me, a lot of it was experiencing truly genuine relationships, like relationships where, you know, the person saw me and not just this idea, this image of who they think I am or this projection of who I want people to see me as. Um, so yeah, that was cool. That's been fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, it's, it's a balance. Like it's not something that you like do and it's done, you know, it's like something that you have to work at every day, you know? I feel like if I would have been more open with my sexuality when I was a lot younger, I wouldn't have spent as much time, you know, like putting myself in situations that weren't necessarily healthy for me in order to like get the, the love, not even love, but just get the attention of the men in my life that I wanted attention from, you know? 
Something that I've realized in my life is that I've known a lot of different types of uh, care and love and um, compassion and just like tenderness from people who identify as um, feminine or women. Um, and as much sex that I've had with men or people who identify as men, I'd, I've never been in love with another guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, as I evolve, a big part of it is like, what would that look like? Like, what kind of, what would that love look like? Mm-hmm. Hooking up is so different. My sexuality is so different. Everything has changed, but it's all strangely the same. Yeah, even though the scenery's changed, the the game is still played the same. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would be like the last bit is like, stay true to yourself because you're the only person that you're going to like be with for the whole journey. You know, like just you know, be true to yourself. But mostly, go out and have more sex and be more fucking sexual. Like I wish that I would have allowed myself that. Because then I I feel like if I would have done that, I would have, I would have still been curious in my 20s, in my 20s and my early 30s, but I think that I would have been a lot less ravenous. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's mostly like, as I get older and my identity changes i definitely like appreciate opportunities like this to document like the the history of queerness and queer identity and how it shifts that's it (laughs) thanks to my producer tom who helped me connect with rc Check out fruitbowlpodcast.com to see a video that I edited that features RC and excerpts from this interview, as well as some footage of Emmy Lou. You can also find links at fruitbowlpodcast.com for all of our social media, including our YouTube channel, as well as links and more information about how to support Fruitbowl. I'd like to give a huge shout out to some recent reviews we've received on Apple Podcasts. I really, really appreciate it. And there was a fun one that posted this week. I just want to read it. This one comes from Tokoloshi, a gloriously frank podcast exploring queer identity and some of the specifics of how that manifests in our daily expression, in our relationships, and our sex lives. Dave's evolving formatting now dives deeper, and I find his easy Midwestern charm and throaty laugh as well as his own vulnerability and brave revelations about himself, allows his guests to open up and share honestly about their experiences too. It all feels very authentic. That is so nice. Thank you, Tokoloshi, for that awesome review. I'm very flattered. Make sure to check out some of our podcast partners that have helped promote us in the past. Dennis Hensley's podcast, Dennis Anyone. Matt Baum's The Sewers of Paris. Glenn and Drew's Gayest Episode Ever podcast and also Alonzo and Dave's Linoleum Knife Podcast Empire. Fruit Bowl is a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs>